It's time now for Illinois Innovators, where we spotlight the trending topics in research, technology, and entrepreneurship surrounding the Granger Engineering community at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Today's guest is Ninad Miltkovich, uh, the principal investigator of the Energy Transport Research Laboratory and the associate director of air, the Air Conditioning and Refrigeration Center at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Among the emphases of the lab is the interaction between liquids and solid surfaces. Recently, his group, uh, collaborating with colleagues at Kyushu University in Japan, discovered a method to de-ice surfaces in a matter of seconds. The method does so by using 1% of the energy and 0.01% of the time. Professor Milkovich is here to talk about the discovery and how it could impact a number of industries. He holds a PhD from MIT and has been a member of the University of Illinois faculty since 2013. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we get into the, uh, the project, I mean, I, I think that your research is fascinating because it combines a lot of a uh, lot of different areas. Um, so talk about kind of the work uh, that, that you do, um, thermofluid fluid sciences, cooling techniques, renewable energy, and how they intersect. Sure, so um, our core lab competency is mainly in thermal sciences, so things like heat transfer, thermodynamics. And the research that we do really intersects between interfacial science and these thermal processes. And essentially what we try to do is tailor interfaces of materials to either enhance these processes or to delay them. So to give you a few examples, um, if you roughen a surface and make it uh, a wetting such that liquids want to wet the surface, you could enhance boiling heat transfer, which is very important for power generation. If you make the surface non-wetting and smooth, uh, you could undergo what's called dropwise condensation and really enhance condenser performance. Again, very important for um, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, energy systems, power generation. Um, and then things that are not thermal-based, but uh, definitely uh, take into account what the interface is doing and how it's structured. Uh, for example, corrosion processes, uh, fouling, deposition, icing, accretion, droplet impact, um, the interface governs many of these processes. And, and that's, that's essentially what we try to do in the lab is develop either surface finishing techniques or coatings to uh, really enhance the efficiency of many uh, systems that we use. And uh, obviously it goes very well with the air conditioning and refrigeration, uh, which you're the associate uh, director. Just talk about the impact that the, these kinds of uh, the research has in, in those areas. Sure, sure. So the ACRC, Maybe I'll give you a bit of a background. The ACRC is a center here at Illinois. It's, uh, it's an NSF-started uh, center, an industry uh, uh, university collaborative center that was founded in 1988, I believe. So it's one of the oldest in the country, and it's actually one of the most successful. We, we currently have anywhere between 25 to 30 companies. Um, the biggest uh, companies that you may know of, things like Carrier, Train, Ingersoll Rand, Daikin, the big suppliers of what we call HVAC and R, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems. Um, and many uh, processes in these systems undergo uh, frosting. And the main uh, work that we do for ACRC is looking at how we could tailor interfaces or surfaces to either help defrosting processes 
or to prevent frosting from happening in the first place. And of course, that's very application dependent because um, if you're going to do refrigeration or heat pumping, the conditions under which frost forms is very different. And you really have to understand the physics, and hence why the University of Illinois is really a great place to collaborate with these companies to, to develop these coatings. Very, uh, you talked about physics, it's very basic science. I mean, it's one of those things that uh, no matter the age of students, you can have really firm uh, experiments to kind of demonstrate. I mean, we talked about you, you have to know uh, about condensation and freezing and why it happens and, and that sort of thing. So it's, exactly. it's, it's, it's kind of, it's elementary, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that the, the basics of it people, I think, could understand. Yeah, yeah, and the easiest way that I, that I connect to it is when I teach my heat transfer class. You know, everybody's boiled a, a pot of water before, whether you're making rice or pasta, and that's a great example of nucleation of vapor bubbles and phase change and how roughness really affects that process. And if you add salt to the water, you'll notice a big vigorous boil start to happen, and the salt crystals uh, act as nucleation sites. And you're right, it's, it's an area which many people have a connection with directly. In, in the home, and it's very easy to motivate some of the work that we do in the lab. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that the uh, listeners got a little of your background. Let, let's uh, shift gears and talk about this particular project because um, a, another topic that I think affects a lot of people, they understand the de-icing process. Uh, how did the uh, this project start? Was it uh, funded? You know, uh, yeah. Was this something that, that your uh, team has been working on for a while? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. This started as an, as an ACRC project through the companies where the initial project was a two-year effort to develop surfaces uh, that will very easily remove uh, liquid that may accumulate on heat exchangers and eventually ice. So many processes in these systems will not typically form frost or ice right away. Um, what I mean by that is uh, moist air will not just desublimate into ice or sublimate into ice on the surface, it'll actually undergo condensation, which will form droplets or films that wet the surface. And then those films become super cooled and they form ice. And the first project that we worked on was a way to develop coatings that very easily allow water to roll off the surface such that it doesn't have the time to exchange heat and super cool and form ice. And what we ended up learning from that was um, eventually frost will form. We could delay it, but it's impossible for us to actually prevent frosting uh, on some of these systems, mainly because temperatures are very low. And although we could delay it, that's great for efficiency. We could reduce defrosting intermittency, but we're still going to have to defrost. And, and we, we sat back and we said, um, how does defrosting work in current systems? And what actually happens is you tend to heat the fluid in the heat exchanger that heats all of the components, including the tubing and the fins. And that then heats the frost, and the frost melts. And once all the frost is melted, and depending on the application, sometimes they'll heat it until all the water is removed from the surface to prevent any refrosting issues. That's a very energy intensive process. You stop your system, you have to reheat your system. Not all of the heat actually goes into the frosting or defrosting process. Much of it goes into heating up your components. And at the same time, you're undergoing a latent heat of phase change because your frost has to melt. And then your water has to evaporate. And those are very energy intensive processes. And when we sat back and thought about it, we thought really all you have to do to remove frost 
is to melt the interface. Melt the interface between the frost that forms and the substrate, in this case, aluminum pin stock or aluminum pins. And to do that, you really have to control where you're inputting the heat and how you input the heat. And that's what really motivated this project. You know, we pitched it to the companies. They thought it was a good idea. Um, and then we sat back and developed uh, the coatings that are able to do this. So this was kind of done indirectly where you were working on something else and, and all of a sudden this seemed like a, you know, a, a good idea to, to pursue. Yes. yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. So we're, are we talking about technique? Are we talking about creating surfaces or coatings, all of the above? Yeah, it, it's actually all of the above because the way in which you defrost is very important. It changes once we, once we apply this particular surface. And then the surface uh, finish of the heat exchanger, in this case, has to be different. So uh, to give you a bit more detail into the technique, um, what we do now and the way the technique works is you coat the heat exchanger with a very thin film of a not, not so conductive, electrically conductive material, such that when you run current through the material, you're going to have some resistance, and you're going to have some volumetric heat generation in that material. And by doing that, you essentially generate heat only in that thin layer, only in that coating. Now, the key thing is there has been a lot of work on you know, thin film heaters and depositing materials. We use indium tin oxide. That's a very common material that people use in, in automotive industry and even aircraft industry. And if you just run current, it will heat and it will melt and it will remove your frost. Our main innovation was the fact that if we look at the physics of heat transfer, if you really want to melt only the interface, you really have to control the time duration of the energy input and the magnitude of the energy input. So you don't, you don't actually want to allow heat to diffuse into the bulk of the frost to allow it to melt. You only want to melt that one thin little interface. And to do that, you really have to pulse the interface, meaning that you have to have a pulse of electrons going through the heater. And by pulsing it with a sizable amount of energy, you will only locally heat uh, that interface. And only a small amount of time is given for the heat to diffuse either into the substrate or into the frost. And what ensues is the fact that you form this thin lubrication layer, this melt layer, at the surface, which then allows the frost, just via gravity or shear forces, to slide from the surface. And this, this is how we got this remarkable, you know, the energy requirement in terms of joules is 0.1 or 1%, and the time is 0.1% mm -hmm. of regular defrosting cycles. And, and it's been getting a lot of attention from aircraft industry, photovoltaic industry, um, HVAC and R, as I mentioned. So we're not really even talking about changing the surface necessarily, potentially adding this coating, but yes, we're, exactly. really we're talking about the technique of how we are uh, actually defrosting, de-icing yes. the surface. Yes, correct. And, and there, there's lots of interesting engineering problems there as well, because if you, if you could imagine if you do have to provide a, a pulse of energy, even if it's less than 10 milliseconds in terms of time, right, um, you, you may not be able to draw that energy from your outlet. So in this case, if you think of a heat exchanger, which is actually a very large surface area component, um, you may need, in terms of wattage, things like megawatts scale. And so that then requires to think a little bit about power electronics, energy storage, capacitors, capacitor discharging and, and charging time scales. 
maybe we use smaller pulses and not just one large pulse to actually melt all the, the interface. And so we've kind of been continuing this project actually with, uh, with a new ECE faculty, Andrew Stilwell, who works on power electronics. And um, uh, prior to that, we had worked with his advisor, Robert Palawa, who had moved on from UIUC. And we're now continuing the project to think a little bit more about how we apply it uh, to actual systems and not just demonstrating it at lab scale. So if you're talking about using less energy, you're talking about s much smaller motor uh, component yeah. to be able to do this, perhaps be able to work on a, on a battery as opposed to ne needing yes. to be plugged into a generator somewhere. Exactly, exactly. And that's, this is why we started with ACRC, uh, because the defrost cycles currently are built into the system. So for example, if you want to run a heat, heat pump system to heat or cool your home, typically the main uh, uh, time of frosting is winter time when you're actually taking heat from the cold air, doing some work and moving that heat into your house. So what happens is your outdoor heat exchanger will frost up. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge limitation. It's a large limitation for heat pump systems, which tend to be a lot more efficient than just using heaters or electrical heating, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, so in this case, it was very important, uh, the way we design it, the way it works. The other application, which many people uh, uh, usually don't think of, is electric vehicles. Electric vehicles currently, uh, state-of-the-art systems that want to heat the cabin in the wintertime, will just have a heater that directly heats air. So they just use joule heating, resistance heating, and basically every electron that you put in every watt that you waste with electrons, you get a watt of heat. So it's 100% efficient. But if you were to use a vapor compression cycle or a heat pump, there you could have coefficients of performance that are two or three, which means that for every watt of energy you spend, you get three or four watts of heat that you can move into the cabin. And what that does is that, that directly translates to the, the, not the lifetime of your battery, but how long you could drive before your battery is out of juice, mm -hmm. especially in wintertime. Right. And so that's another particular application where an HVAC in our system may not just be something that's stationary in your home. It could be something that's on either an aircraft or on a transport vehicle, in addition to de-icing of aircraft, for example, as you mentioned in the beginning. Yeah, you, you know, I hadn't thought about the electric vehicle aspect, particularly in the wintertime when you're, you need to try to heat. Yeah. Ha yeah. You need extra heat to be able to, to heat the... The cabin. Yeah, and many, many of the current companies, uh, companies like Ford and Tesla that are developing electric vehicles, uh, heat pump integration is a big area for them that they're investing money into and looking into. And this de-icing uh, approach is, is a very important approach. So I don't know if you can be specific or not on the companies that you've worked with um, that, that maybe were interested in this. Can you, even if you can't talk specific companies, can you give industries that you've dealt with sure, that, that sure. have an interest. It seems to be a wide range of industries that would be really interested in this technology. Sure. So for in terms of the center activities, ACRC, um, there we have quite a few companies. And the main ones that we've been working with are the big either residential or commercial suppliers of HVAC in our equipment. Um, a, a few examples would be Train, based in Wisconsin, La Crosse, uh, Carrier in Indianapolis, uh, Daikin, that's uh, based in Osaka, Japan, but they, they recently bought Goodman and they have a large presence in the United States. Mm -hmm. Those are the big three kind of manufacturers. The other companies that we have interest in and that we work with are heat exchanger companies that actually supply the heat exchangers to these system developers. So companies like Sanhua, based in China, 
uh, Brazeway based in Michigan, Heatcraft, which is owned by Lennox. Um, these are, and Mala Bear, for example, that, that's based out of Germany. They're an automotive heat exchanger supplier. Um, so these are sort of the, the smaller scale suppliers that have interest in enhanced de-icing and saving energy. Now in terms of sector, I mentioned HVAC and R. Automotive sector, we have close collaborations mainly with Ford and Toyota. Um, and although there we have worked with them extensively on other projects, not necessarily on the icing project, uh, we are getting some talks initiated and, and there is some discussion there on moving forward. Um, the main area which we've had the most interest in on this project has actually been aviation. Right. And although initially aviation was not the main, th um, the, when we wrote the paper, we did do conditions that are that are interesting for aviation, i.e. this process at minus 70 C instead of minus 15. And that was to kind of prove it that it'll work even at lower temperatures, which you typically encounter when you have icing up at high altitudes. Right. And uh, so what ended up happening was, uh, to give you an idea, maybe three or four weeks ago, the St. Louis International Airport called me. They had read the paper, and uh, the gentleman working there uh, kind of gave me some ballpark numbers of what they spend on de-icing every year. And um, in order of magnitude, the gentleman told me that in Detroit, for example, to install the de-icing facilities and the sewer systems required to actually separate the de-icing fluid, which is not a fluid you could just pump into your water system, that's on the order of $100 million. Wow. And that's just for the Detroit International Airport. That's not for all the airports in the US. Um, in terms of St. Louis, you know, their sewer bill is something like a million dollars a year just to deal with the de-icing fluid. And so this gentleman who called was very interested because he had, he had had a contact at Southwest. Southwest was very interested in putting this coating on a, uh, like a proof of concept plane that would fly from St. Louis to Chicago, to ORD. And he had mentioned, you know, we need to talk to Boeing or we need to go to Airbus. And I kind of sat back a little bit and was a little bit, you know, I tried to tell him that this is lab scale. We're still not at the point where it's something like a paint that we could put on an aircraft. But that is something that we're looking into is how do we partner now with the Boeings and the Airbuses to develop a paint that could be used for an aircraft system. Well, when you, when you think about the scale and, the, and the, the, the money you're talking about, you can see why the, the uh, airline industry is very anxious to get, the, to get their hands on something like this because, yeah, as we said, 1% of the energy, 0.01% of the time, that, that, that's a lot of money saved, and, uh, and certainly the margin for airlines is, is very thin as it is to be able to save this kind of money. I, I could see why they would be interested in that. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so, so for us, even though it wasn't the primary motivation, we're certainly happy uh, that people are interested. Uh, another, another example is a gentleman contacted me who lives in Northern California and owns a, um, a pilot school. He has a fleet of about 12 airplanes, smaller airplanes, uh, but it's where pilots go to train to get their pilot's license. And he had emailed me about a week after the paper came out He's a U of I grad, and he was coming back, actually. He gives seminars to the civil engineering department about career success. He's been very successful in his career, and he flies airplanes over to Sierra Nevada. And the week before, he had an icing event. And he had told me about how scary it is when you're flying over the mountains. There's no airstrip where you could land. <laughs> you're either going to de-ice, and in this case, he had a chemical de-icing system, and it worked. But it's a very scary experience. So. He had actually flown out to meet me. He flew to Willard. We met. We spoke about the systems and how he could help us implement them in a smaller scale prototype. 
Um, the other interesting thing that he brought up was he also has a residence in Colorado, and Colorado's a great state for photovoltaics, but photovoltaics are not used in Colorado that much, mainly because of snow cover. And so even though it's sunny nine out of 10 days, because it snows so much, you just cover up your PV. Mm-hmm. And if you think about heating your PV to melt the snow, that's very energy intensive. And so it, it, the economics isn't there to actually use the electrons from PV to melt. But we had talked about what if we pulse? What if we pulse the, the snow and let the snow slide off the PV? And that, that's another area which we had not thought about, but talking through discussions, we're now thinking a little bit about how we make transparent uh, surfaces for something like PV, where we could then pulse it and still allow sunlight to go through the interface. So you mentioned uh, the papers come out, the, the proof of concept is there. How quickly can this uh, be brought to the commercialization stage? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. I think uh, one of the main issues is, um, or I shouldn't say issues, but you know, the FAA, for example, if we're going to try this in an aircraft application, there's quite a lengthy time process. Right. So I don't envision this is going to be implemented any time within the next five years. Um, depending on the amount of investment and who takes this on and how people move it around, maybe 10 years, 20 years, if the economics is there. Again, we still have to sit back and think a little bit about what does the system look like, even though now we, we do have nice power from the wall and we have small area samples. If we were to actually pulse a large aircraft, what does that mean in terms of energy storage? How big would the battery have to be? How big would the capacitors have to be? Is the scaling there to, to make it work such that the added weight of these systems onto the aircraft makes sense for the de-icing, or is it still going to be better to de-ice it on the ground, not have to add any weight, and fly the plane? And so these are all kind of the 30,000-foot questions that we have to answer before, you know, I'd love to come here and say, oh, in the next year we're going to have this on the next Boeing 737 once they upgrade it, but I'm not going to say that. Um, There's still a lot of work to be done, and this is why we're here at Illinois. Well, you mentioned your collaborators and some uh, some new folks coming on board uh, in ECE. Talk a little bit about the relationship that you have with uh, Kyushu University uh, through Eisner, what that is. Uh, obviously, the focus has been on uh, hydrogen, renewable energy, uh, fuel cells, that sort of thing. Um, just talk about that relationship and the things that you've been able to do since you've been here. Sure. So Eisner, Eisner is a great center. Um, for those of you who don't know about Eisner, it's a center on um, um, carbon neutral technologies. And my role in Eisner, there's a large division in thermal sciences. And both for non-hydrogen and hydrogen-based power generation, uh, heat transfer is a very important problem. So I'll give you an example in uh, fuel cells, which is something that Eisner, for example, works on. Um, if you are going to generate hydrogen, whether it's from renewables or nuclear energy or high-temperature electrolysis, um, when you run that hydrogen through a fuel cell stack to generate electrons or energy, you also generate heat. And you really have to think about how you extract that heat from the fuel cell stack. Now, that, that's a very complicated process, mainly because for a fuel cell to be energy dense, you have to have hundreds of these layers right next to each other. You don't want to make a giant system. You want to make it pretty compact especially if you want to make it on, on a vehicle, on a fuel cell vehicle. And so how do you extract this heat efficiently from these thin layers that are you know, less than a millimeter spaced apart? And how do you then reject that heat to the outside ambient air? And so it's a kind of a two-part process that we work on. We work on, A, extracting that heat efficiently through the use of phase change. So things like boiling and evaporation 
and then transferring that latent heat via the vapor phase and recondensing it somewhere else. That's mm -hmm. a very efficient process where you could transfer heat at low temperature differences. But at the same time, a fuel cell operates at a much lower temperature than an internal combustion engine. And therefore, the temperature gradient from your heat source to the outside ambient air, which is where you reject the heat, is much lower, which means that you have to have much larger heat exchangers. You need more area. And so we also work on how do we enhance the air side heat transfer, how do we downsize some of these components to make uh, fuel cells for transportation more efficient. On the other side of things where we, we do work for Eisner, which is non-fuel cell related, is for you know, classical power generation, when you think about the base load that we utilize in the United States, for example, or even around the world, about 80 to 85% of that load is given to us via a steam cycle some sort of steam cycle, which was developed, you know, more than 200 years ago. So you're boiling water, you're uh, running it through a turbine, that turbine is turning a generator, you then recondense the water, you put the heat in again to boil mm -hmm. it, and you run through the cycle over and over again. And, and reuse the water in the process. Reuse the water, it's a closed cycle. Right. But during the process, you do have to have some heat exchange because you have to get it back into the water phase, so you have to have a condenser, which actually lowers the pressure at the other end of the turbine and makes the turbine turn. The efficiency of that condenser is kind of the lowest hanging fruit in terms of enhancing the overall efficiency of the plant. And the, the typical question I get is, you know, what, what can you enhance? How can you enhance the efficiency? The system has been optimized already for well over 100 years. And we tell them, you know, if, if we could have better coatings to enhance condensation heat transfer, you could enhance the efficiency by 1.5 to 2% of the overall plant. And people will sit back and say, well, that's nothing. But I tell them this is about 85% of the base load of all of the energy generated in the United States or even around the world. And so one and a half to two percent is actually quite a bit, mm -hmm. both in terms of lowering the cost, the levelized cost of electricity, and in terms of lowering the CO2 emissions if you're going to use this on a natural gas plant or a coal plant. And so for Eisner, we've mainly been looking at condensation processes and how we develop coatings that actually are durable, are scalable, can be applied to many of these large-scale condensers with thousands of tubes. And it's actually only recently that we've been able to start talks for potential collaborations with Exelon, which is an Illinois-based power company that does both fuel, um, uh, apologies, coal-based uh, power generation as well as nuclear. And uh, working with them, we'd like to actually demonstrate on this on a pilot plant, a reduced-scale pilot plant, uh, but to show that it will work in a power condition. Well, I would think that the research has to be a little nimble as things are changing rapidly, and, and certainly there's a big big push towards renewable energy. What what may be applicable today, uh, you mentioned the other technology, uh, that it may be, we may not see this for 10 or 20 years. You have to kind of be doing research to plan for what it's going to look like 10 to 20 years from now in these areas. Exactly, exactly. And, and the way my view on my, my group's kind of mentality that I try to keep in the group is, not necessarily to be doing work on something that you could predict will happen, but do work on the things that interest you. And so that's always been my kind of career goal, is I, f I find things that interest me. I, I'm, I'm a, I love heat transfer. I love interfacial science, uh, visualization, understanding these processes, understanding how they work. And usually things have come out of it that are very applicable and can make an impact on the world. And um, we're not necessarily driven by making a direct impact. Mm -hmm. We're mainly driven by our curiosity. 
And it's only that curiosity that will foster impact eventually because, because you're going to find things that are going to be impactful. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, what kinds of things are you working on today? And, and uh, we talked a little bit about the future. I, I want to kind of leave, leave it open to, to where you see this industry going. Sure, yeah. So, so today, uh, the lab is quite large. Um, I mean, we have 30 people in the lab. So I think right now, 24 graduate students, uh, four postdoctoral scholars, and a bunch of visitors, international visitors, that come in as PhD students. Um, and we have a whole host of projects. Uh, maybe to give you a few examples, I talked a little bit about this Exelon collaboration. Right. One of the main limitations to many of these coatings is the fact that they don't last. And there's many research groups out there. We're not the only one that has shown uh, enhanced performance or enhanced efficiency. Um, one of our bigger, more sizable efforts that we have in the lab is understanding the physics of what actually happens to make these coatings degrade. And that's, that's the kind of more fundamental take or look that we took on the problem, uh, mainly because many academics don't want to deal with that problem because they think this is a company issue. Mm -hmm. Companies should develop coatings that we tell them this is how it's going to work, but then they'll deal with the, with the durability issue. And so we really sat back and, and thought a little bit about how we study durability, how we study the fundamentals of degradation, whether it's during icing or condensation or boiling. And really working with the material scientists, uh, we have a very good collaborator in material science, Dr. David Cahill and uh, utilizing kind of advanced techniques, time domain thermal reflectance, uh, measuring parameters that are very important to understand the mechanics of what's happening during failure. And then on top of that, connecting with the companies that actually develop the coatings. So we have very close collaborations with PPG, which is the largest paints and coatings manufacturer in the world. They're based in Pittsburgh. And uh, Chemours, which was formerly DuPont. And it's with these companies, you know, they have the chemistry and material science expertise we have the heat transfer expertise and the ability to say what's going on at the, at the fundamental level. And it's through feedback with their chemists and our work that we're able to actually push the bounds and develop these durable coatings. I would say uh, Illinois is known for the, uh, research in self-healing materials, so this fits exactly. right hand in hand. Exactly. And, and so it, it's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, we, uh, I'm also part of um, ICAM, which is a center run by Nancy Sotos. Right. And Nancy has a lot of self-healing work. Uh, I've actually had talks with Nancy to develop self-healing super hydrophobic surfaces where you can encapsulate the material, and if it's scratched, it could actually release and redeposit on the surface. And yeah, you're very right. The, the self-healing work based in Illinois is, is well-known all over the world, and, w and I think we are the top school in that area. Um, where, where our work fits in relative to the self-healing work is the self-healing paints or polymers that have been developed tend to be a little bit on the thicker side. And for many heat transfer applications, we have to keep things thin because when you add this polymer to the heat exchanger, you can't add the thermal resistance associated with polymeric materials. And so that's kind of the synergy we've been trying to find in working with Nancy. How do we now make very thin coatings? Um, and actually trying to work with Nancy for an ACRC project. Um, we're actually putting one in this year uh, for anti-corrosion coatings, which is a big big problem for HVAC in our companies. Ninad uh, Milkovich has been our guest, um, a uh, associate professor of mechanical science and enge uh, engineering here at Illinois. Um, we thank you for your time. The, the, the uh, topic that uh, we focused a lot on was on this technique to efficiently de-ice surface, de surfaces in a matter of seconds. And 
that's very interesting, but uh, I think we've learned a lot more uh, through this talk, and we appreciate you coming in. Okay, thank you for having me. This has been another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illinois Innovators. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, or become involved in our community by using the hashtag Illinois Innovators.